every person has their favorites, whether it be their favorite actor, their favorite musician, their favorite Avenger. Where are my Avenger fans? Come on, come with me. Uh, their favorite Mexican food, as long as it's not Tex-Mex Texans, all right? As long as it's not Tex-Mex, we're happy. Their favorite preachers. Mine's favorite preacher, just to let you know, is Seth Harris. So um, just letting you know, amen, amen, um, that kind of a thing. But if you were to list some of the best preachers in the history of mankind, Who would be at the top but the Prince of Preaching, Mr. Charles Hadley Spurgeon? If you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, I encourage you, read something of his outside of the Apostles of the New Testament. Charles Spurgeon, masterful preacher. And look, I'm just going to tell you, church, I have understood I am not going to be the next Charles Spurgeon. God just hasn't gifted me that way. I wish I was, but man, I'm not that smart. So I'm going to boast in my weakness on that to you and just say, I am what I am. Um, But I love Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon suffered with depression and anxiety his whole life. To his dying breath, he battled in depression and anxiety. And if you are struggling with that, by the way, he wrote a great devotional called Beside Still Waters. Highly encourage it. Great book for you to read. But there's a story for you I want to share with you about Charles Hadley Spurgeon and why I bring him up. If you know anything about Protestant history, Charles Spurgeon you know about. He was a Baptist minister in the mid-1800s to the early 1900s. He could paint with words better than Picasso could with a brush. And what Spurgeon did was he grew a church, and when he died, his church was a member of about 5,000 people. And you knew about Charles Spurgeon if you lived in Great Britain. A name you might not be familiar with Literally the same time as Spurgeon is a man named F.B. Meyer. Who? F.B. Meyer was a pastor who was called same area as Spurgeon, whose church was right down the street from Spurgeon. Uh, F.B. Meyer would stand outside his church as he was greeting people as they would come in, and he would see carriages and people walking past his church headed to Spurgeon's church. His church was not 5,000 members. It was a very small church. F.B. Meyer had one of two options. He could become embittered and jealous, or he could pray and rejoice in what God was doing through the ministry of Charles Hadley Spurgeon. F.B. Meyer decided that he was going to rejoice and encourage Charles Hadley Spurgeon. He befriended Charles Hadley Spurgeon, encouraged him through his whole ministry. Spurgeon then passed away, and some of Spurgeon's members then became members of F.B. Meyer's church. Then another person came on the scene, G. Campbell Morgan. And people left Meyer's church and headed to Morgan's church. So now when when Spurgeon was alive, he saw people going this way to Spurgeon's church. Now people are going the opposite way to Morgan's church. They would... 
F.B. Meyer and G. Campbell Morgan would be preaching at conferences together. And uh, G. Campbell Morgan would be the keynote speaker, and he would preach. And when he was done, a lot of the people would get up and leave, and then F.B. Meyer would come up to preach, and not a lot of people would be there. So he had a decision. Do I become embittered and jealous, or do I rejoice and become encouraging? F.B. Meyer would later say this, and I loved how he phrased this. He said, I reason this. I could not become jealous and envious of a man in which God called me to pray for. Man, what a powerful testimony. F.B. Meyer finished off his ministry. Not a big name. Not in any Baptist history but a man who devoted his whole ministry to pray and rejoice in the successes of others. Friends, it's a choice to rejoice. And I, I want to just, I'm going to just break the ice with you this morning. I know there are some of you in this room currently struggling with anxiety and depression. And I know when I say to you, it's a choice to rejoice, your mind is screaming at me, yeah, right, but I want to invite you to turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. And I want to show you how Paul makes this very clear that you must make the choice to rejoice. I want to remind you that God used Charles Hadley Spurgeon, a man who struggled in depression. And Spurgeon would say amazing things like this, by perseverance the snail would reach the ark. Spurgeon would say something like this, atheism is, a myth, is an interesting thing, a vice not even the devils believed. And God used a man who suffered with anxiety and depression for an amazing glory. And if you are in here this morning and I'm gonna talk about choosing to rejoice and the choice to rejoice, I don't want you to tune me out. I want you to dive in and I want you to press into what I have to say to you this morning because rejoice comes from God, not from your circumstances. The apostle Paul is writing the book of Philippians in a jail cell currently. Rats are coming into his jail, so I'm sure he had them named. Cockroaches are sharing his bed, and I'm sure he had a flea circus in which he charged rent. And as the, as the jailers would come by and Paul would say things like, thank you so much for my one priest of bread today, they'd be like, yo, we beat the tar out of you. Why are you loving us so? And he's saying, because I'm choosing to rejoice in my sufferings. And they're like, but we have beat you. And he says, yes, and I now bear the marks of my Savior Christ. Amen. And to that I am overfilled with joy. We're going to take a hard look, and I want to prepare you. If you are new to the Oasis, what we believe here at this church is we believe in the preaching and teaching of God's Word. This is where you say amen. amen. So let me say that again because I've got to wake us up. At this church, we believe in the preaching and teaching of God's Word first and foremost. There we go. All right. So how we do it so we can wake up this morning is how we do is we read through five chapters a week. 
And what we wanted to do as a pastoral staff is we wanted to slow down in a book. We wanted to spend some quality time in the book of Philippians. And I don't know about you, the more I'm reading Philippians, the more I'm learning, and I'm like drinking like out of a fire hose. You know what I mean? Like I'm just like, this is so good. I've got to tell somebody how joyful it is to be in Christ's family. Amen. All right, good. So I want to tell you this is a joyous occasion because what we celebrate here every Sunday morning is the simple fact that Christ died for us and he was resurrected and we have been counted right because of what God has done on our behalf and that we are secure in that. And that's why we rejoice. And that's why Paul's going to call us, make a choice to rejoice. Now, church, I'm going to have to walk through some really difficult things this morning. And before I do that, I want to invite you to join me, if you are able, join me on your knees. Why do we do this? Because prayer is the most important thing we can do as a church. And I want to invite you to pray with me as we seek holy boldness in the preaching of God's word this morning. Would you join me? Father God, I boast not in my strengths, but in my weaknesses to you this morning. A man who comes with great fear and great trembling to preach and teach your word. A man who knows there's so many better preachers and teachers of your word, yet you've Position me here for a time such as this. God, I pray that you'll give me boldness to preach your word this morning. God, I pray that you will do a miracle in our hearts this morning. You will waken us up to the beautiful gospel that we hold on to so dearly. Now, church, I ask you to pray for me. Pray that I'll be helpful to you. Pray that God will use me. Pray that God will humble me this morning, that I'll decrease so he can increase. Now, church, I ask you to pray for yourself. Pray that God will remove distractions, that God will open up your ears, open up your mind, and most of all, open up your heart for the preaching and teaching of his word, breathed out by him, is profitable to us this morning. Father God, we pray these things. God, we pray there is someone in here who doesn't know you. We pray that they will see you clearly this morning. God, we love you in your son's precious holy name we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. First word we see here is finally. Now, when a lot of you read this this week, you looked at finally and you're like, hold on, you're only halfway through. What do you mean finally? Like you're like, is this this pastor that says finally and then he goes on for another 30 minutes? 
right? This doesn't seem like the three-point sermon guy that has it on his third point. He says, finally, the third point. Okay, those are organized preachers. I'm just not one of those. I'm sorry to you. Um, but uh, he's not meaning finally in the sense of this is the last thing I'm going to say. He's using finally as a transitional phrase. The NIV, I think, says it really well when it describes it, whatever happens, The Holman Christian Standard Bible got upgraded a few years ago to the Christian Standard Bible. Great translation. I think uses it even better. They say this, continuing on. Paul's moving on to a different subject. He's continuing on in his discussion with us through the book of Philippians. And then he says this, my brothers. So we need to make sure we don't insert 21st century America into the text. We need to pull out, what does Paul mean when he says, my brothers? First of all, he's speaking not to just the men. If he was speaking to just the men, he'd say men. But he's saying, my brothers. He's using a very familiar, loving way of saying to my family. It's a gender-neutral phrase in the sense of, it'd be the same thing as me saying to you, how are you guys doing this morning? Now, no one's in here going, oh, he's only talking to the men. You see, it's a colloquial way in which we say, you all. And so, so what he's doing here is he's speaking to everyone. He's saying, hey, my friends, my brothers, my sisters. And then he says this, rejoice in the Lord. If you're a note taker, circle that word rejoice. Rejoice. That rejoice is in the imperative. It's a command. You must rejoice. Friends, without rejoicing, we will suffer. We'll be choked out. I want you to sit on this phrase for a moment. Rejoice in the Lord. Look at it. Stare at it. A very great Bible study method for you is as you're reading, take a small phrase and read it over and over and over again because you're going to realize in a hurry to get through the text, you're going to miss something important. Like a small two-letter word, in. Where is Paul commanding us to rejoice and find joy in? In the Lord. This is vitally important because it reminds us that our joy does not come from our circumstances. It comes from God, and it is in God in which we find joy. That if your idea is, man, if I just get this next thing, I'll be joyful, I'll be happy. Brother, it ain't going to happen. Man, if I can just get this promotion, if I could just do this, if I can just get to this level, I'll be content and happy. It ain't going to happen. So our rejoice is found in the one who gives joy. Our rejoice is found in the one who saved us, who called us according to his purpose. Next, we see this definite article of the And then we see Paul using this word, Lord. Now, we've got to think for a moment, and we've really got to stop and marinate for a few minutes. Why does Paul use the word Lord here? Why doesn't Paul say, rejoice in Christos Jesus, Jesus Christ? Why does Paul use Lord here? 
If you were to take a, an overview of the New Testament and Paul's use of the word Lord, he always uses it in very specific areas. If he's writing to a Jewish audience, he's going to use it to remind us of the Lord of the Old Testament. You know where you see the Lord in all caps, Yahweh's name, and he's going to prove to you Christ is Yahweh by his use of the word Lord. Yet Paul is writing to Philippi. Remember, it's a very Roman colony. It's, a, it's an area that when you go into Philippi, it's going to look like a mini tiny Rome. There was not a lot of Jews. We know that there was less than 10 Jews when Paul first came to Philippi. And so this did not have a big Jewish influence, so he's not referring to the covenantal name of the Lord. That's what he uses when he's writing to a Jewish audience. Rather, he's writing to a Roman audience. He's using Lord as king, emperor, master. He is referring to God, though. And what is happening in the church of Philippi is you've got, Rome, you've got little Philippi who loves Rome and who they also love, the emperor of Rome, the Kyrios, the Lord of Rome. And what happens is Paul comes in, he starts this church with three people, a super rich businesswoman, a super poor slave girl, and a very militant man, a jailer. And his first thing to teach them is Christ is the Lord of Lords. And so when he is teaching them this and the church would go out and they'd say to people, hey, Christ is Lord, the culture would be unbelievably offended by that statement. They would say, no, the emperor is Lord. If you don't like our city, if you don't like our country, if you don't like where we're at, get out of here. And so this met the church with great persecution because Philippi had a really high nationalism. And Paul teaches the church, you must understand the Lord of Lords trumps any other Lord. And so why is Paul using Lord here? Why do you think Paul's using Lord here? Paul's about to walk through as he has been walking through, chapter 1, he talks about how there are false teachers in their midst. And that they're, they're false teaching for their personal gain. They'll come up and they'll say something like, did you all hear about Brother Paul? He's in prison. Could you imagine if he would just love Christ, he wouldn't be in prison. And Paul says, you see, they're preaching that for selfish gain. But I find joy because Christ is still being proclaimed. He also then is going to walk through, stand together against the enemies. He's going to walk through that in the end of chapter 1. Why? Because massive persecution has happened. The city has said, hey, you're not with us. You're obviously against us because you think Christ is Lord when we think our emperor is Lord. Friends, government has never been our Lord. Government cannot save us. Do not put your hope in our government. It fails. It is a human entity, but God is Lord. Amen. And he is in charge. And so Paul is preparing the church, as any good pastor should, for suffering. Persecutions happen, and Paul's going to tell them it's going to continue to happen. And he uses Lord very specifically to remind us of one very important thing that any suffering you received, 
God is still in charge and in full and complete control. Suffering is not the absence of God's control. And so if I can just, if I can just share with you my heart on this, and I want you all to really hear my heart on this for just a moment this morning. I pull my hair out and literally get so upset when people ask really legitimate questions like, why is there suffering in this world? And we throw a bumper sticker answer like, because we're in a fallen world. That does not answer the question as to why we are suffering. It does not teach us anything about God. It does not teach us anything about the Bible. And it definitely doesn't teach us anything about ourselves. We just throw it on there like perfume on a grave. And that's not how the Bible talks about suffering, by the way. How the Bible talks about suffering is you're going to go back to Job. It's a whole book about suffering. And the bookends of Job is simply this, that suffering came to Job by God, from God, and God's the one who completes the suffering. That there is no point in Job's suffering that was outside of his control. The New Testament, when you get into the Gospels, the only unjust killing was the killing of Jesus Christ. And that was the greatest suffering. That was the unjust suffering. And guess what? God was in charge. And so by throwing on the bumper sticker that in suffering, suffering happens because we live in a fallen world, does not answer suffering question. Because let me tell you, the problem of suffering is not a problem for God. In the same, in the same area, by the way, the problem of evil, these philosophical problems, is not answered by the free will argument. In fact, the free will argument is going to create more problems for you than it will help you. But we see that with the problem of suffering and the problem of evil, the answer is always found on the cross. That the answer to the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, and any other problem we have is found at the center of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Because it reminds us that God is in charge. If you look at the book of Acts, you go through and you will see that the Jews pulled in the apostles and said, you stop preaching Christ right now or we will beat you. And they said, okay. And they walked out and they kept preaching Christ and they're rearrested and they said, hey, we're going to beat you for preaching Christ. And they walk out of their beating. I mean, spine in view going, yes, it's so great. I got beat to tar. And they rejoiced in their suffering. And they're like, oh, this is so awesome. Why do you think the church rejoiced in suffering? Because God was their kurios. God was their Lord. He was their master. And this is where I want to get really bold with you this morning. The idol of our culture is comfort. I want you to hear my heart on this. I want you to hear this. And listen, I know a lot of you are saying, hey, you're a young punk. You don't know what suffering is. You don't know what I walked through. Okay, I'm reading what the Bible tells us about suffering. And here's the deal. We often see as suffering as a problem to be solved. It's not a problem to be solved. It's not. 
It's only a problem to be solved if idol, if comfort is our curios, is our Lord. But if Christ is our Lord, then it's not a problem to be solved. It's from God for the purpose of God. Now, let me just push you a little bit further in this. If you're in here this morning and you are just suffering and you are sitting here and you're upset, you're saying, wait a second, I don't like what you're saying. I want to tell you, here's the good news, that your suffering is producing in you a godliness and a holiness that you may not see right now. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4 clearly tells us we don't look to what is seen, but what is unseen, which means God is going to bring you through suffering. I don't know when that is. Only he does. He's going to bring you through suffering, and you're going to look back and go, that's where God moved in my life. Because God is Lord. And let me tell you something, church. God did not ask permission to invade your life. He doesn't need your permission. He came in and he said, I am God. And your response was, okay, Lord, wherever you would have me go, I'm going and I'm going willingly and I'm going lovingly because that's where I want to go. That's where I want to be. Man, I want to be pressing in and I want to be reaching out. That's what I want to do, God, because I want your glory seen, even if that costs me my comfort. And Paul's going to write this. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Translation, I'm going to tell you some things I've already told you, and I'm going to tell them to you again. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about false teaching. More importantly, Judaizers. There's a few textual things I want us to walk through. Um, our 21st century American kind of deal is like, he's yelling at dogs. Oh my gosh, what a horrible, wretched man. Um, relax. All right, when Paul's writing this, think of it dogs were scavenging pack hunters. They would go and they'd find roadkill and eat roadkill, they would be like vultures to us. And just like if I were to tell you, hey, and if in like 2,000 years, people are going to have vultures as pets, they're going to dress them up really nice and put bows in their hairs, you would be like, that's disgusting, right? That's how they thought about dogs. They were unclean, nasty animals. And so Paul is talking about false teaching. False teaching is a major theme throughout the New Testament. False teachings in almost every book of the New Testament. John the Baptist looked at the Pharisees and said, you false teachers, you brood of vipers. Jesus talked about the false teaching of people saying, man, I'm depending upon my works to save me, so I'm going to come to him and say, Kyrios, Kyrios, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name and that in your name. And you'll say, away from me, you workers of iniquity, you evildoers. Paul, Galatians, writes about a whole sect of false teaching. First Peter, look out. Satan, working through false teachers. James, look out. 
If you think you're saved and there's no evidence of salvation, then look out. Jude talks about counterfeit false teachers. And church, I want to tell you this morning, false teaching has run rampant in even America. And can I just share with you again, holy boldness here this morning, I am horrified at our lack of biblical discernment. We have accepted books like The Shack, where the author, clearly a universalist, clearly a teacher who denies the holy biblical trinity, who says this, Jesus, in the book, Jesus is talking the main character, and Jesus says this in the book, quote, I am the best way to the Father, which stands in direct opposition of John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way. We have churches that are celebrating this book as something great, and it's clearly false. Other books like Heaven is for Real, a book about a little boy who dies and goes to heaven and talks about it. And we're celebrating this as good teaching, yet it lacks biblical and scriptural authority. Uh, Proverbs 30 verse 4, John 3 13 clearly state that the going up and coming down from heaven is, belongs to Christ and Christ alone. The false teaching of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. It does not talk about suffering is from God for his glory. It talks about if you love God, you get things from God. Let me tell you, friends, the gospel is simply this, that if you love God, you get God. And that's the best news. And there is no better news than the fact that, man, if I love God, I get God. And so whatever happens from there is rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And I don't understand why we're so entranced by this idea of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It makes me cry. There's a sect of teaching that elevates miracles of God over God himself. It's terrible. And Paul's talking about the Judaizers here, a people who have put works before salvation. Let me tell you, if you put a work before your salvation, if you believe you have to do something in order to come to God, then you have robbed the cross of its power. That's not the biblical gospel. And so Paul is telling us we need to rejoice even amidst false teaching. And here's why we rejoice in false teaching, because it gives us an opportunity to teach the real gospel. Do you know why I have hope in tomorrow, because I get to teach and correct people with the false gospel, with the real gospel. And that's the hope for you too this morning. And let me tell you, false teaching, regardless of how harmless it may seem, is evil, it destroys, it's worthless, and it's always counterfeit. 
verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Why do we rejoice, church? We rejoice because we know the truth and we lean in and we trust in God for the truth and we find ourselves worshiping the true God and this gives us great joy. Because there are religions out there that will teach works before salvation. And the distinguishing mark between true Christianity and false Christianity is how they understand works and salvation. All other religions will put emphasis on the person. They'll say, hey, listen, this is what you must do to be accepted by God. I want to remind you, you did not give God permission to come in and invade your life. He came in and he wrecked you and said, here I am and I am Lord. And that's our rejoice. Because you're not the quarterback of the team. God didn't put that in your hands. He put that in Christ's hands. And when that clock hit zero, Christ emerged from that grave victorious, saying death and sin has been paid for and it's been paid in full. And there is no more wrath for all who would believe. And so we rejoice. We make a choice to rejoice because we believe God is Lord of lords and he is in charge of all things. Yet it's hard, isn't it? Because it doesn't take a rocket scientist, it doesn't take a brilliant person to realize that this world is broken, shattered, and is hell-bent on destroying itself. And as we look at this and we start to ask questions of God, we start to ask questions like, God, how could it be that on Easter Sunday you allowed a bombing of one of your churches? God, how could it be that you allow such disregard for human life? How can you allow such atrocities like that? And the list goes on and on and on, and our questions become greater. God, why is this happening? Why is this going down? And you become frustrated. And you're like, God, how could you allow people to defame your name like that? And you realize that the true gospel was you, were, you once were a defamer of God's name. You once were a murderer. You once were a thief. But God didn't say, you clean yourself up and then you come to my table. He said, no, you come as you are and I will clean you up. And the greatest joy we have in this world is the fact we can ask God those questions and he says, here's why I can allow that and here's why I can allow you to even ask such a question because it's been paid for. And we see it here in the text, in verse three, we worship by the spirit through Christ. 
who says, man, I have paid for it and I have paid in full. And I, I often find myself praying to God, God, why are you doing this? If I was in charge, I wouldn't be doing it this way. And he reminds me, if you were in charge, you would have never sent your son. And so I'm silenced. And I want to tell you something, church, as I was looking through this text this morning, and I was just, I mean, I was just weeping over God, I want you to move faster. Man, I want you to do things better. Man, and I found myself there, and God says, do you realize it's my grace that you're even allowed to ask those questions? And here's what I found, church, and I, I want to tell you this this morning in the most love I can, and I can say this because I believe in the full and complete sovereignty of God through and in all things. Let me tell you this. If you're in here this morning and you don't know Christ I'm going to tell you the non-seeker-friendly version of this. If you follow Christ, it can end badly for you. But it's totally worth it. And I would never trade my salvation for a Ferrari and a bigger house. Because God is totally worth it. In my whatever, God is worth it. In my struggles, God is worth it. He is worth every single ounce of suffering for his glory. Because remember, God is for God. And I rejoice in that fact. And the beautiful thing is, God loved a sinner and a wretch like me and a sinner and a wretch like you. And so, you know what I say to my life? I say, you know what, life? I'm sure I could have more, but man, God, I just want more of you. Is that how you're thinking this morning? 